0: Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast, the Hoover Institution analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Will NATO Survive as a Credible Alliance, and Should It? And our guest today is Joseph Jaffe, the Moroccan Anita Abramowitz Fellow in International Relations at the Hoover Institution and editor-publisher of Deedsite. Joe, thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. Now, the focus of this issue and consequently your piece is is primarily Europe, but we can't really talk about the European security environment without talking about its relationship to the American one especially given how much responsibility the United States carries within NATO. So you start your piece at Strategica with this very arresting argument, which is that the actions that the United States have been engaged in in recent years have the practical effect of essentially undermining world order in the, in the long term. Explain that thesis and also, if you will, what that means by extension for Europe. Well <clears> – <throat>
1: World order means that you need to have somebody who takes care of business, somebody who mines the store. And um, for the last 60, 70 years, that entity has been the United States, <clears throat> which has taken care of regional balances and tied them together globally and um, with its far-flung nets, net of alliances, hundred bases around the world. <clears throat> uh, and, 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 and fleets on the oceans. So uh, in the last six years under the Obama uh, administration, you, you, we can observe something which I call self-containment, or to use IR language, it's the United States balancing itself, so to speak, mm-hmm. meaning that it is uh, reducing its power Uh, both physically in the sense of uh, steady linear disarmament and reducing its power in the more figurative sense by um, displaying a, a clear reluctance to commit its power. And that obviously has consequences in the international system, which, like nature, abhors a
0: vacuum. And Joe, quoting you from your piece here, Nations can always reverse spending trends as post-Obama America will probably do if the Republicans Mm -hmm. hold on to the Congress and capture the White House in 2016. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Europe's problems run deeper. The downward trend is embedded in Europe's cultures and politics, and it's a lot longer than two American election cycles. All right. Let's imagine that you are talking to a time traveler, someone who has come to the present day from the 1940s, from the midst of World War II, the continent gripped by violence. And here, 70 years later, you are remarkably describing a Europe that seems to have entirely lost any notion of a warrior culture. How would you describe for that time traveler what happened in the interim?
1: Well, first of all, I would not uh, start him out in 1940. Remember 1940, Europe was virtually at the feet of Nazi Germany. Uh, They had done most of their conquests. Uh, except for for Russia, of course, I would go back to to make the point, the dramatic point, and I would say, look, uh, in the last 500 years, essentially the history of the state system, Europe Europe has been the the venue uh, or the reason or the source of most of the major wars fought. Uh, in fact, Europe was practically always at war. Um, and it to do so I had to have a warrior culture, and I think World War II or the, no the combination of one and two which which kind of amounted almost to a collective suicide of Europe, uh, set in motion this this enormous cultural transformation, where um, Europe progressively began to well. To forget Clausewitz, meaning that uh, that force is an integral part of policy, and as European integration progressed, it saw itself as a kind of empire of peace, an island of peace. And after two generations, that will impinge on the culture, uh, meaning <clears throat> that, that armies have lost their prestige, uh, uh, they have about as much prestige as the post office. Mm-hmm. But above all, uh, Europe refuses or no longer wants to use force as a tool of policy. With some exceptions, um, Britain and France, but by now I would no longer count Britain, because it too is becoming like the rest of Europe, running down its army. I think the, 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 the Just give give an example of of Britain. Britain now has 18 major surface combatants. At the beginning of World War II, it had 250. Its army is going to shrink to the size of 50,000. That's less than they had, uh, I think, in North America during the Revolutionary Wars. So that's how I would try to explain it to our
0: Martian. If if you're talking about, on the one hand, a U.S. that is hiring of the burdens of global mm-hmm. leadership, and on the other hand, a Europe that doesn't have the stomach for a, a fight anymore, how would you compare and contrast those two dynamics? Are they different in degree or different in kind, do you think?
1: Well, in my darkest moments, I, th- I, I fear that they're only different in degrees because, I mean, after all, Europe and, and, and the United States are part of the same Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And um, the greatest analyst of the U.S., Tocqueville, predicted what would happen. As uh, democracy spreads, as prosperity grows, uh, he says uh, people will no longer listen to the, quote, poetic excitement of arms. Uh, as people become more prosperous, their manners become milder um, and less oriented to, to war. I think you can see the same thing. Well, you can see the trend in the United States, a certain aversion uh, to the use of force. And um, if you look for warrior culture, I think you can probably still find it in the South. And, but above all, and that's, 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 that's the difference, the U.S., in spite of the last six years, still views... Force as an integral part of policy, which I'm afraid the Europeans don't.
0: I want to talk about the three threats that you discuss in your article that you see facing Europe right now, and we'll take them one at a time. And in each instance, if you would, I'd like you to tell us what you think Europe should do, and in your judgment, what it what it will do. Um, first topic <coughs> you mentioned the the growth of militant Islam in Europe well that's obviously not a military issue uh,
1: that's a police
0: issue it's
1: an intelligence issue and I, I have to say that the Europeans are pretty vigilant here uh, especially the French and the Brits uh, you know with the, with their intelligence services and the Germans though they, th- though they don't have the same kind of capabilities are cooperating very closely with with the US with the U.S. intelligence services. So I think on that part, uh, the U.S. and Europe are pretty much on the same page. I wouldn't worry about this. On the other hand, there are a lot more militant Islamis in Europe than the United States. I mean, the Islamic population in this country is minuscule. uh, and It is behaving like immigrants have always behaved. They come here to become Americans and to make it. Uh but in europe you know you get up to ten percent um in a in a country like france uh and you know thirty forty percent in the big cities so um the Europeans have a bigger problem, but I think they're handling that as well as one can without without threatening
0: uh a liberty I want to talk to you about one that we are bringing up in every episode uh, in this series is Russia, of course. And and you're very circumspect in your piece about trying to make predictions about what will happen. Um, and I won't push you on that, but let's talk about the, the hypothetical that everybody seems to bring up and not a terribly seemingly far-fetched one, which is that Putin goes into the, the Baltic states or Poland, ostensibly across the, the NATO tripwire. Um, how do you anticipate that Europe and NATO responds at that point? What does that mean for the future of the alliance?
1: Well... Uh, I hesitate to 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 deal with with this um, hypothetical, but I just want the reason why I do is uh, that there's a, there's a significant difference between the Baltics and the Ukraine. Ukraine was kind of open game; it belonged to nobody, but the Baltics are part of NATO, and that is a very different challenge than this kind of. Conquest by infiltration, we see in the Ukraine. Um, but the the way um, the NATO has has protected its periphery uh, is now being reenacted again in the Baltics. Meaning, uh, we put troops in forward position. That's your tripwire, and that signals to the Russians: you're going to have a harder time, a much harder time you're running a much higher risk attacking the Baltics than you did in this no-man's land that is Ukraine. Uh, plus, there are a certain... You know, you, NATO is doing things. It is setting up regional headquarters in the east. It is rotating troops in and out, even American troops. Americans, Americans are repositioning heavy equipment. So the signaling signaling comes with some punch, which I don't think Putin is going to ignore because Putin is not crazy. I mean, he's just very coldly calculating the odds, and he saw that they are down to zero in Crimea, but the odds are not zero um, in, um, in in the Baltic. So I don't think he will do what he did to the Ukraine, which is kind of. You know, the little green man, Greenman strategy.
0: So the final question that i'll I'll put to you then, the simple one that is the the prompt for this issue of strategica, will NATO survive as a credible alliance and should it? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, to, <laughs> yes to both questions. I mean,
1: theory and th- history told us twenty odd years ago. When you know, the, the, the Soviet Union collapsed and, and withdrew uh, that alliances die when the threat dies right and which is which is which is generally true uh, it didn't do so in the case of NATO uh, NATO survived very nicely you know a dec- couple of decades without without a strategic threat so that suggests that it has a high functionality and high usefulness for uh, for its members, and that usefulness uh, has been proven in in the most recent case uh, in Ukraine and you know, Russian expansionism. I mean, NATO has proven to be capable of acting and putting uh, its 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 troops where its mouth is. Now, should it survive, that's that's a no-brainer. Um, it's done extremely well during the Cold War. It's proving it's, it, it survived during the no-threat phase, and it's proving its worth right now. I don't think anybody, anybody in Europe, even, even the most pacifist countries, question their membership or the rationale of NATO. So this, this, this alliance is going to, it's already, what, 66 years old? One of the longest-lived lived alliances. It will, it will persist.
0: All right, my guest has been Joseph Jaffe, the Mark and Anita Abramowitz Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and editor-publisher of site. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at Hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.